Welcome to Executives in Wealth Management podcast. I'm your host, Tom Spencer, Director at Cygnus Search and Selection, executive search firm across the UK wealth management space. In this podcast, we'll provide our listeners with exclusive insights to the most successful leaders, disruptors, entrepreneurs and relationship managers in the market. Our guests will share their stories and experiences on topics such as leading a business, managing home and life, influencing skills, or with a view to help you gain valuable tools that you can apply into your own professional life. In episode seven of the Executives in Wealth Management podcast, we're delighted to have been joined by Alan Smith, CEO and founder of Capital Asset Management. Throughout this conversation, we talk about Alan's use of podcasts and how to create a scalable marketing strategy, what he means by building your tribe, and the power of simplification. Welcome to uh, Executives in Wealth Management podcast, Mr. Mr. Alan Smith. How, how are you today? I'm really good. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me on. Looking forward to the conversation. No, me, me too. Me too. So I'm sure you've listened to lots of our episodes, Alan, but if you haven't, the purpose of what we're, we're trying to do here is to understand the, the person. Okay, I'm trying to understand Alan. Um, we get a range of guests from business owners like yourself and founders to professionals in big corporates and everything in between. And so we're less interested in the 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 corporate title or the corporate facade and really just unpicking Alan's lessons that Alan's learned through his career. And I think the best way to do that is to understand you as a person and particularly your upbringing, your youth and the influences on you as a young person that really made Alan who Alan is today so what we tend to do is spend five to ten minutes however long you like really just understanding those formative years that made you who you are now before you start i will reference that i have actually listened to um the episode of the bulletproof entrepreneur uh series two episode one i think it is where you spend 45 minutes talking about that journey to some extent and i will encourage anyone who's listening to this to go and do that because it is quite a story but a condensed version of that alan if if you would thomas thank thank you so much it's great to come on as a guest and someone else's podcast and the first thing we do is advertise another podcast yeah. <laughs> which which as you say for your vast army of listeners is is a podcast that i that i started last year called bulletproof entrepreneur and yes you're right i having spent uh the whole of season one interviewing uh, a number of um, successful business owners entrepreneurs and people who advised them I, I sort of took a break and then i started season two and you're right episode one was and it was a little bit it's a bit cringe actually because you're doing an episode a, a solo episode talking about yourself yeah it's tricky you know because you, this i don't know about you but this my my i i the thing that dominates my existence is imposter syndrome. I, I always think, what am I doing here? But I think I even talk about it in that episode. Yeah. And I thought, how am I going to speak to the world on um, all about myself? Nevertheless, I did. Thank you for the shout out on that. It is um, available for those who want to listen to a longer version of this. But the summary position is this. I'm of that generation. And if you speak to anyone of my age who works in financial services, I've never met anyone so far who says, yes, I went to school, I went to college, went to university. And the one thing I wanted to be in my life was a financial advisor, a financial planner. Uh, pretty much everyone of my generation, inverted commas, fell into the job, fell into the role, got here by accident. There's loads of people uh, who are doing really, really, really well. 
Um, but the, it was more it was more accidental, and mine was no different. Mine was an accidental journey into the world of personal financial services. Mm. I'm from the west coast of Scotland. I'm from a small town, seaside town called Troon, T-R-O-O-N, known to nobody other than golfers. It's famous for golf. Uh, it's got some. It's got the a championship golf course. They hold the Open, British Open there every every few years. So growing up is a great place to be a kid because you either play golf or you go swimming in the sea. And it's uh, it's fun, although it's not central pay. <laughs> that's for sure. Anyway, normal education, normal schooling, normal upbringing. Uh, and then I get to college slash university uh, and got a couple of years in and thought this isn't really for me. Didn't really enjoy the academic uh, uh, setup there. And I mean, the really long story short is through a, sort of a friend of my dad, I get an opportunity to move to London at the age of 19 to join what was a um, very small, I, I want to call it a stockbroking firm. Obviously, this is quite a few years ago. The world has moved on since then. But it was a, it was a kind of a retail stock, stockbroking, stock selling company. And on the basis of nothing venture, nothing gained, because my my other options were getting increasingly increasingly limited, I thought, why not give it a go? So I... I followed that kind of well-trodden path down from Scotland to the big city, bright lights of good old London town, thinking like a lot of people do, I'll be here for six months, I'll make a few quid and I'll go home. And here I am 30 years later, still waiting to go home, inverted commas. <laughs> um, and that was it. So I worked at this small boutique, they've long since closed down now. Um, now, if you've ever seen the film Water Room, it wasn't quite like that, but it was, you know, it was, it was legit and it was legal, but it was kind of selling stocks. And so I was never doing that. I was sort of very much, you know, making the tea, doing the filing um, as a sort of young raw recruit. But I was there for a couple of years and I got to know a little bit about finance at the time. Started taking in those days some very fundamental base level exams, but realized it wasn't really for me long term, that particular firm. And started looking for a job I actually went to I think I went to a, probably the only only other time only time in my life I used one of your services for myself yeah. I went to a recruitment company as a candidate and they put me forward for interviews and again not not a lot of thought into it they put me forward for a job with standard life as a trainee broker consultant was the was the title and went for three interviews got the job didn't go for any other interviews because that worked quite nicely for me. And that was it. So I get given, couldn't believe my luck, given the company car, got enrolled in a company pension scheme. I got, you know, quite an uplift on my compensation and my salary. Happy days. There I was a young sort of 21 year old, you know, flashing around the West End of London. And, <laughs> and it was actually, it was a really, really good experience for me. I stayed at obviously the brand, the company's changed beyond all, all recognition to the company I joined back in those days, um, standard life, but, you know, trainee consultant and then graduated after, it was actually pretty quick, six months or so. They, mm -hmm. they let you loose to say, here's, here's your postcodes, here's your areas, yeah. here's your brokers and your IFAs that you look after, you know, go and knock on a few doors, which I did. And I loved it. Honestly, I, I, had, a, I had a great time. I got to build some great relationships with some, some pretty good firms. Um, Again, you. I mean, this this is a this is a uh, nine early nineteen nineties. 
very, very different setup then. Obviously, way, way, way before RDR. I mean, we, we weren't long into actual regulation. I think the actual Financial Services Act that's brought in any regulation of any material sort of consequence was only in 86, 88, something along, along those years. So I think before then, there was just, can you kind of imagine it? There was just no regulation. Anyone could sell anything to anyone. Didn't have to have a license, didn't have to be have exams or, or authorization. So it wasn't, you know, so the, there was probably a bit of a legacy of that world still kicking around. So there's some interesting, you know, meetings and conversations I used to find myself in. But gosh, you know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot pretty quickly. And I ended up being at Standard Life for 14 years. Wow. So sort of um, man and boy. Really grew up. Um, there's a lot to be said for working in a big corporate environment there's, there's a lot of course i could moan about so most of us could complain about but there's a lot honestly there's a lot of positives i you know it's a net huge positive my time there mm. lots of uh high quality training lots of personal development work you know built some great friendships with, with people who i'm still you know very friendly with now um so thoroughly enjoyed my experience so you know out of 14 years that was when you know life began to change a bit. It was one of these crossroads moments to a turn left or to a turn right. Yeah. And and what, what kind of what was the, the position you found yourself in then, Alan? Ultimately it led to a point where you had an opportunity to to buy what became capital asset management. Yeah, a little yeah. bit further down the line, isn't it? But how did you approach that aspect of your life? Look, quite Simply, I was. I tell you one thing about me is I'm kind of I'm an, I'm a student of my game. You know, I'm a, I'm a sort of study our profession. I I used to read all the trade papers and the magazines and stuff, and really try to understand and get under the skin of what the industry was, what the opportunities were. And I mean, those days there was. Um, I mean, most advisors sold products for commission. That was what it was. There was little or nothing in the way what I call recurring revenue. There was a bit, there was an emerging sort of industry with selling unit trusts and things like that. There was a bit of a, what they call a trail commission sort of thrown into it. You had no control over what that was. It was just wherever the company chose to pay you. But it was mainly, you know, you sell a pension and you get commission. That was the kind of the, the industry. But I could begin to see things evolving and, ch and changing. And I, I could see this kind of recurring revenue model was becoming more, slightly more prevalent with, with the more forward thinking firms. But, but really, quite simply, what happened was, I get to know, you know, you, what, you, I mean, you, you know the, uh, the profile, you know the sort of business I'm talking about. My job is to go and generate opportunities and new business for the company that I represent, in this case, Standard Life. And so my advisors, that I, you know, I, I go and have a professional kind of B2B type relationship with them. They've got all the rest of the market to choose. And I don't think things have changed significant beyond all recognition. But I would go and, you know, meet them pitch, present and say, you know, for your next pension scheme, for your next whatever recommendation, then use us rather than use Scottish Equitable or Aviva or Norwich Union or whoever else. So you get to know your people pretty well. You tend to build up really good relationships with some of them. So there was this one gentleman um, in uh, specifically who I just got to know really well. And he was one of these, there's always a few of them, you know, I, and I mean, I mean this with a lot of affection, but um a really awkward customer you know he was just one of these guys you get on the phone he'd just be moaning and groaning and shouting and screaming at you so he was a sole trader his name was simon sole trader um ifa and although he was a you know, very, you know literally him and a pa secretary 
he was one of my biggest producers of business. He just had the most extraordinary book of business and client relationships. You know, he was a he was a member of Wentworth Golf Club. He was a member at Lloyd's, a name at Lloyd's. He was just, he was a sort of big connected guy in the city and just kind of knew everyone. And as a consequence, he just had a, you know, a, a, a client bank to die for. But he was uh, he was getting older. Just one of these classic things. He was getting older. He he and I used to speak and you know go for lunch and sort of chew the fat and talk about various things. And he would talk about his plans for retirement. In, in his ideal world, he would just scale back. He would go from five days a week, four, three, two, and then sort of get into formal retirement. Didn't want to go immediately. But he wanted to have a phased retirement. Now the interesting thing, and 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 for your you know any listener under the age of probably you know forty maybe. You almost can't can't work this out because his business, despite the fact he has some extraordinary clients and he was making a ton of money and you know generating a lot of revenue, it wasn't worth anything. It wasn't worth anything because it was only as good as his last sale because it was a product selling business. And every time a client wanted a you know a new product or a life insurance policy, I needed to top up their pension contribution. That was perfectly fine, but if he wasn't there, that would you know it wouldn't happen. But there was no sense of kind of what I would call unavoidable income revenue that would come through the door. This kind of model, the model that we live in nowadays, which is a fee for service model, where advisors are paid being paid a recurring revenue stream in return for you know whatever they do, planning, advising, ongoing sort of advice and support. So his business was worth frankly nothing, um, and he wanted to retire. So that's and he hadn't saved enough money. <laughs> Because he enjoyed a you know high quality lifestyle, so yeah. you know that's a problem. So and again, to cut a very long story short, he said to me, "Why don't you come? Why don't you come and take over the business? You can buy it from me." And I said, "Well, what's it worth? It isn't worth anything." So bit of negotiation back and forward, and in the end, and it, this really was one of those moments because I wasn't unhappy where it was. It was fine. I was earning good money. I was a, by that time I'd been there quite a while, so I was quite a quite a senior person. Mm standard I, I was still um it's kind of the, the important thing here for me I, I think looking back and it was I was I was kind of self-sufficient in that I wasn't married didn't have children you know I was I was sort of single and I thought well look this is an opportunity that comes along they don't come along that often and I really one of the frameworks that I use is kind of um is, is kind of worst case scenario framework what's the worst that could happen if I jump ship here the worst that could happen is it's a complete flop. It's an utter disaster. It doesn't work out. And in a month, two months, six months, I'm leaving it and I'm starting, I'm doing going somewhere else. Well, could I survive that? Could it, yeah, I had enough liquid savings to, you know, to put food on the table for me for a period of time. I could survive that. And I, I had enough self-confidence to think, um, we'll get another job. In fact, my when I did resign, my boss at the time, who I still know to this day, he said to me, look, if it doesn't work out, just come back. You know, I'll find another job for you. Now, yeah. I don't think I would have done, but it was nice to know. So I, yeah. I, had, a, I had a few safety nets, to be, to be fair. So I, I took the leap. I took the leap. Um, my, the, final, the final sort of conversation, because honestly, it, it was a big decision for me. It, wasn't, it, it, was, it was kind of what I was leaving behind, as well as the, the complete uncertainty of what I was going into. Because don't get me wrong... This was going to literally, from a one-man band, it's going to become a two-man band. This is as micro a business as you can. I was working for a business at the time that had tens of thousands of employees and offices all over the world. So it was a big decision. But I remember having a conversation because at those moments, you tend to seek advice and counsel from everyone around you, your friends, your family. I've got this opportunity. Should I do it? Should I not do it? And of course, everyone's got an opinion. But I remember speaking to a friend of mine. 
when I was thinking, do you think I should go? And he, he said to me, which was the kind of the, the decision-making point, he said, and I thought he was being really profound. I found out later, I think this is a Mark Twain quote or something. I didn't know at the time. I thought this guy was being, wow, you're so wise. And he said, when, when we get older and we look back in our lives, we tend not so much to regret the things we've done as we'd regret the things we haven't done. He said, you're always going to wonder. If you don't go, you're always going to wonder what it would have what would have happened if you if you'd gone. If you do go, you'll know the answer. Even if it doesn't work out, at least you know. At least you sort of gave it a go. And I thought, you're absolutely right. So that was the, the pivotal point at which I handed in my notice. I resigned. And I just went, and I, you know, overnight kind of thing, became an IFA. And the interesting thing is, I honestly thought before I did the job, how hard can it be? Because I may, I hang out with these guys all the time. Yeah. All they seem to do when I meet them is sit across a desk, you know, speak to a few punters, you know, flog a few pensions or whatever it might be. <clears throat> they seem to earn pretty well. They all tend to drive nice cars, the ones I met. How, how hard can this be? And I was wrong, <laughs> to say the least. It was it was quite, it was much it was much more different in in practical terms when you become this in this advisory role. It's very different to what I'd anticipated it to be. It's harder for sure. Lots of moving parts, lots of complexity, lots of accountability and responsibility. And it's certainly in the well, the business that I joined and became. Um, there's 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 no there's no one around you. You know, in my in standard life, if yeah, you know, if you if your laptop doesn't work, you just you know, or your computer, you just you just call some number and some techie guy comes and fixes things for you. All of a sudden, you yeah. know, you're. I said to Simon because something I had some tech problem in the first couple of weeks. How do we get this fixed? He said, "Google it." I don't know. But yeah, find out. In fact, it wasn't Google because I don't think Google existed in those days. It's almost like Yellow Pages. Yeah. I don't know. Call some tech guy. Get. <laughs> oh, really? So it was. Um, it was both daunting and exhilarating at the same time. And that you know that's where it all began. So you know, you know, tiny company, standard life, fourteen years. Started to take a leap into the unknown, join a micro IFA firm to help facilitate this one guy's retirement. And that's what happened. The, you know, Simon, he immediately went to four days a week, three, two, one, retired completely. And, you know, we went from being a one man band to a two man band back to a one man band because <laughs> he retired. There was me by myself. Okay. Um, I'm interested and, in that. And so that, that, that was, that was the, how the, that's how the company you're speaking to now, yeah. that's how it began. It was me by myself. In fact, again, again, an example of how things have changed in, in 20 years, let's call it. Uh, the, my only employee was a, a PA. So somebody who was literally answering the telephone and was literally typing letters, typing. So I was, I used to dictate. I can't imagine that now. But, you know, with a handheld dictaphone, you know, dear Mr. Clyde, uh, da, 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 nice to see you, et cetera. And Molly would type my letter and put it in the post. So there was me and me and Molly. Uh, and that's that was the setup, early days, you know, day one, once Simon had retired. What I'm interested in, Alan, is you, you reference frameworks. And, you know, I guess, you know, you can infer from that you have a kind of a structure to your decision-making process in some way. Yeah. And and you've come out of an environment like Standard Life with tens of thousands of employees and you know IT department and finance department etc. And and what is your frame of mind? You're you're twelve months into this transition. You've made the step. You're not going back now. 
you know, a bit of pride yeah. on the line. Um, yeah. Simon has left. It's yeah. you and Molly. And it's like, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to move forward. How do, how are you thinking at that point? What, what's going through your mind? Right. Good, good question. There's, so there's a number of, number of things going through my mind. And I look back now and, and, and frankly, you know, how naive I was. And, I, and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I'm a great reader. I read books all the time. I always have done. And I still do to this day. And so I, by that time, I would have read books like The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. I'd have read, you know, like a, a bunch of really, uh, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So some of the seminal personal development books and business development books I would have read. And everything I read always talked about business growth. You have to grow, grow a business and you have to. And I thought, well, that's what you do. You just you know, I've now got a business now, and by this time, so I'd, it was a different name. I rebranded it. It can effectively create a new, a new, new co day one. So I now am a hundred percent shareholder of a new business. We've got a bunch of clients, but I'm now, I'm the advisor. I'm responsible for seeing them. And, and what was interesting at the time was it was kind of a, a period of transition. There's always transition, but this is a, this is a very specific period in that Simon was, and I'm, again, I mean this with affection. It was he was very old fashioned. I mean, he, I mean, to the extent he used to dictate emails, <laughs> someone to say, you know, to get his dictaphone out and, and then get Molly to type an email to send somebody. So he was very much of the old school. You know, great advisor, very high integrity, high quality. Looked after his clients extremely well, but technology hadn't really affected him in, in any way. So I came in with a big, you know, big co background, and so technology was part. And, and I just, I saw an opportunity. To bring some of the sort of modern, a modern, perhaps a more modern approach, and obviously, I'd learned a lot from speaking to and working with you know, dozens and dozens of advisors in the job as a, as a consultant. And I, my approach was to try to cherry pick the very you know, kind of best practices from different firms. So you know, firm A, they've got a really good investment strategy. Firm B, they've got really good how they, um, they're they're you know how they charge their fees that's quite interesting and how, so if i could sort of pick and choose of what i saw as being the you know best practice across the board for a bunch of different companies and apply it to this company then you know happy days and kind of that's what we did and and simon again in terms of investments and products and stuff that he'd be historically recommending to clients there was a huge cultural shift going on as well because historically he'd been recommending with profits funds which again the younger listeners are probably not even have heard of but with profits, kind of was a was an investment strategy which dominated the UK retail investment market. You know, ninety percent of investments were on this. It was kind of, the, you know, the insurance company investment strategy. All the big life, you know, all the big investment companies then were predominantly life insurance. So this thing called a with profit fund was very popular. And so most, but so I and I knew, even though I came from Standard Life, which is a huge with profit company. I recognized the flaws in that system quite early on. And so I was able to kind of reposition to our clients. There's a modern way to do it. Simon was wonderful, Simon was good, but there's some more modern thinking. It's incumbent upon me as your advisor now to bring bring you up to date some of the kind of way, modern ways of thinking, um, the ways of investing, ways of, you know, all, all that sort of thing. So. All of a sudden, we had a lot of opportunity. A lot of it, so we, I had the blend of the historical loyalty of these clients who'd known Simon for forty years in some cases, yeah, um, blended with a kind of perhaps a more modern 
proactive, forward-thinking approach, recognizing that the world was changing and we ought to take advantage of, 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 of you know, of kind of new thoughts, new ideas, new technology. So I just get really busy, and I'm just like I'm, I kind of become inundated. There's just so much work to be done. There's, there's the existing clients. They want to invest more. They want to do more things. And they started referring more and more people because they quite like the idea because of this blended historical relationship. Simon was still coming for meetings. That's the, even though it was seven, he enjoyed, you know, you'd always invite him in for lunch. You would come in for a nice lunch with a client. So we would leverage his relationships, his long-term loyalty to these clients and bring in some new thoughts and ideas. So we started getting more and more referrals. And in another moment of madness for me, we also bought, also bought another IFA firm, another one-man band guy who I knew who was retiring, and I spoke with him, and so bought his client banks. All of a sudden, it's still me, and I've just got you know hundreds of clients, yeah. and and, and, to, to, and it was ridiculous because to the extent that, I mean, some of them, Frank, I, there was not enough time in the day. I couldn't, you know, people wanted to me to call them back, and you know, I just leave in the office at nine o'clock at night, ten o'clock at night, and it was just uh, difficult. So, what I knew then, Thomas, was you know the, the only way out of this was to recruit to hire and that that's what it began so as i say me reading all my business books me being trying to sort of work out how the hell you do that i mean i've never run a business i never you know there's yeah exactly you know you you rely upon and the, the, of course the trouble is all these business books they're kind of they're usually american they're usually about something corporate type structure like and it's entirely different to running a micro business in the uk but you sort of you take you take some of the thoughts and ideas, and as I say, it's all about growth. So I just started again. I guess I'd call it organically building the team. Mm. So my and it was honestly, it was really scrappy. It was there was no big strategy behind it. It was word of mouth. I just felt I'm overwhelmed with work, and yet there's so much opportunity here. You know, we're turning down. I'm turning down. I can't get back to people uh, in time. So through kind of through a friend of a friend, I get introduced to uh, Graham. And Graham's still with me now. Graham is my first hire. His okay. outrageous salary demands. I thought, bloody hell, how am I going to pay for that? <laughs> if you're listening, Graham. <laughs> um, still still having the same conversations. No, I'm only kidding. Um, but but you've got to, I just felt that the, the, it's kind of like there was no option. We've got, to, we've got to run with this. I've got to commit to paying him a salary. And this is when things begin to change. You recognize there's someone else's. I can deal with myself, and I still still wasn't married or anything, so I can pay my own. I can get by. But all of a sudden, you've got another person on the payroll who's got a wife, kids, mortgage. Mm. Becomes a bit more serious. Then need to be a bit more sensible about what we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve. But bring great first hire. You bring him in thinking, oh, right now I couldn't afford to pay you. I can afford to pay you for a few months, but if you don't, if you don't generate some income, there literally isn't enough in the kitty to pay you forever. So we've got to take a view that there's enough business out there for us to, you know, to work on and to, to, to earn on, and therefore we can pay all our bills, including salaries. And that worked really well. As I say, Graham, that's the best part of 20 years ago. Graham's still here. And life goes on, and life goes on. Then we moved office to a slightly bigger place, and then we still were busy, and we still we still you know, I, I always think about this, this industry and this role. I don't think it's rocket science. I think the number one thing to do is, is show up every damn day. Money is um, it's a complex subject. It's emotional. And, you know, and I, and I know more than most clients, hopefully all clients, I know more about it. And I've got the ability to help them, to inform them, to educate them, and to reduce their worries, concerns, and anxiety. That's a noble pursuit. That's something we should all be, you know, we should be proud of. And so we carry on doing this and we keep growing. And 
opportunities kept arising. So then, we, as I say, we moved office. I recruited our next advisor, Charles, who's also still here this day. And as I say, we just showed up every day. We did our best. We looked for opportunities and accompanied. And honestly, the company has, and that, that was, you know, that was some forward momentum. And it's only been organic ever since. We carry on growing. We meet people along the way. We recruit other people. We bring other people in. There was never any automation thing. Never wants to be a huge company with 100, 200, 500 staff. The one thing I'll say that I'll, that I'll give it a, a pause for breath is, again, going back to my standard life days, I, I looked after one, one man, one woman operations. And I also looked after multi, you know, huge, huge companies, big national brands. I would know them as well. And what I saw as a sweet spot in the IFA type um, sector was probably four or five advisors, all really good advisors, good good people, men and women, honesty, integrity, professional, well-qualified, ambitious. That was a sweet spot. Kind of the, the one-man band type thing. They were fine. They were profitable, but it was a different, that was kind of more, that wasn't really the business I wanted to be. Mm. And the 20, 30, 50 advisors, that, that wasn't for me either. But, you know, four, five, maybe six, all of them combined are, um, they're all kind of bouncing off each other. And I think that sort of the net effect, they can be highly productive, highly successful, highly profitable business models. And that's what I had in mind. That's why we always wanted to, to kind of get to, which is kind of where we did get to in the end. Yeah. So what I'm interested in to understand is most people and most businesses don't retain their team for 20 years. You know, it happens and you see like, you know, life is at the bank, but I think that's for a different reason. You know, particularly small businesses tend not to have the level of client loyalty or employee loyalty, actually, that you've been able to demonstrate. And part of that will be the success of the business, but part of it is almost certainly culture-driven and the environment. It's a nice place to work. There's lots of successful businesses around, I'm sure. Um, can we... Can we pick at that a little bit you know what is it about the softer side the culture that you think has allowed for an environment where people have that level of loyalty that we don't often see um i, I reflecting on it i think and again you'd have to ask my colleagues who've been around for a while what their view is but in financial services and you know i've been around a long time i've met thousands of people i've had many are kind of you know in the in the in the bar after the conference sort of chit chats about things there's a lot of broken promises in our industry there's a lot of people who were promised things you know if you come and join me you'll i'll pay you this or do this or there's a client bank waiting for you or whatever and there's a lot of those promises have been failed to deliver upon i would like to think that everything i've said everything i've promised i've delivered on Every single time, there's a personal, um, it's, you know, personal accountability, a, a, an integrity thing. I say, look, there's going to be bonus structure. There's going to be a, and look, don't don't get me wrong, I haven't always got it right. I've made a few errors a lot in terms of you know compensation and things over the years, but I've, I've, I'd like to think I've always been honest about it and hold my hands up and say, look, I think we've miscalculated on this. This isn't going to work. I, I've operated largely on a kind of what I call um, kind of an, an open 
accounting viewpoint. In other words, any, I mean, anyone, I think, in the team, certainly any of the senior people in the team can can literally, and, and they're encouraged to look through our accounts, look at the data, look at the numbers, look at how it all stacks up and say, and so sometimes you say, well, I'd love to pay you pay you more, but where's this going to come from? Because we've got, to, we've got this to pay, we've got that to pay. So I think having a culture of uh, openness, transparency, honesty, um, admitting if you get things wrong, but saying look, together, it's, um, I mean, we've got, a, we've got some core values here that we've, Created some years ago, we sort of documented, noted them. Um, one, one is a candor, can, being candid, which is telling the truth, mm. and the other is uh, collaboration. So we want to be collaborative. We want to be, you know, not us, me against them, or people against each other. We say, we're all, we're all on the same side. We're all rowing the same direction. We, you know, we are greater together than we are individually. Let's not go. Look, I mean, inevitably, a bunch of people you're going to have the, a few bumps in the road along the way but relatively speaking we haven't had many and i think it's a culture of as i say openness honesty transparency admitting when you get things wrong but culture is very important hmm. to us i think we all it's, it's one of these things people talk a lot about it's quite hard to define and unless you live it it's and, and experience it and i you know as as I've, as I've already described i haven't worked in lots of other places but i've had people come here you say this this is definitely different it's definitely different to my you know where i used to be because it was a culture of whatever fear or anxiety or quite a lot yeah. it seems to me there's a few places where there's a the culture is quite different to me it's just this this is all i've ever had um really in terms of the, the company so it's what i what i'm used to but to some it's quite pleasantly surprising and positive and does that so i kind of want to take the conversation towards as a ceo or as a founder of a business that's still running the business you sometimes head of everything and a part of that is kind of head of marketing or sales and marketing or whatever we call it but the revenue generating aspect of the business from a new mm. business perspective and 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 culture and linking those two points together so does your culture extend to how you interact with clients from that very first touch point from that um Absolutely. but i'm i'm just to understand how yeah that, so completely um again another one of our we call it the five c's uh a capital our core values so another one is is being client-centric so everything begins and ends with the client we want great outcomes for clients whatever it takes wherever it, wherever it costs us so um so one of the things that we well what I was always conscious about, you start talking about core values and mission statements and stuff, it all gets a little bit fluffy, or it can do, it can get a little bit, yeah. you know, kumbaya, as I say, and <laughs> sit around the campfire talking about stuff. So it has to be commercial, it has to be practical. Uh, and the way, we, so we, we do have these core values, we do have it documented. Um, and what we do is we would look for opportunities wherever they exist to recognize, either when people, you know, there's various mechanisms nowadays we can do through technology to to applaud and reward team members and acknowledge them. You know, someone did X, Y, and Z. That was over and above. That was absolutely client centric, or someone else is such such something else, and that was that was super creative, which is another one of our core values. We want to be creative, so we want to we want to you know call out good behavior and recognize and applaud and reward good behavior and we also want to call out bad behavior if if you like or things which are out of line with our core values so right from day one in terms of when we recruit people 
our, our whole kind of recruitment process is done through the filter of our core values. Mm-hmm. And some of the questions we would ask you in an interview process, they're to kind of flush out. If someone answers in a particular way, you think that doesn't feel to me that that's a very client-centric person. They're going to struggle being here because everything we do is about is number one for the client, for example. And so it, all, it, would, it would happen in the same way with, with clients, with clients. And so all the, the client experience ought to represent what we stand for, what the values are. And so it applies to say, and I think with clients, it, it can be, I think the, the, the core value of, of candor is a very important one because we'll tell the clients the truth and sometimes they don't want to hear the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the things you tell them, um, you know, there's a number of different things you could say, but they, they want us to sort of trade the market. So what do you think about the, the dollar or, or should we buy gold in a portfolio? So we've got a very clear, for example, investment philosophy. You know, there's, there's no wavering on it. We've, we spent years, you know, learning about it, documenting it, and living it. And we'll tell a client that if a client wants something that we can't do, even though they might be a big fee-paying client, we'll tell them candidly, we can't, we won't, and these are the reasons why. And if it's if it's it just if it's so important to them, we would politely have to decline or part company, for example. So these things are important. I think the minute you start compromising them, is the minute you lose your team. Because everyone else says, well, we, we do all these core values, well, unless we're going to lose money from it or unless we're going to yeah. lose a big client or something. No, it doesn't work like that. You've got to discuss, you, it's got to begin and end. And these things have to exist and you have to live and breathe them. And so someone in my role has to demonstrate those. I can't be doing anything you know, personally, professionally, or any, anything else which would compromise those things because the whole thing would just fall, fall flat on its face. Mm-hmm. And it is one of my key roles. As a matter of interest and for your listeners, I'm... For a business of our size, which is still pretty small, um, I'm one of the things, and people tell me, one of the few kind of direct company directors who's, you know, to, to, to use a phrase, off the tools. So I don't advise clients, haven't done for years. You know, obviously that's where I started. I was advising all the clients. But I recognized over time that if I was to, if I were to help achieve our strategic objectives, I, I simply can't be spending 90% of my life in front of clients, client meetings, yeah. doing all the, the routine stuff. So the team of, of advisors, that's their primary account. That, that's what they're responsible for is working with clients. Part of my role, though, is bringing in new business and finding new opportunities for us. Mm. So that And that's something you know I, I continue to do. I enjoy doing. I think from a prospective client's viewpoint, it works quite nicely. They like to speak with me sometimes as the founder of the business. And I can articulate some of these core value things and work out whether we might be a good fit. And if so, we can I can introduce them to one of the uh, one of, you know, some of my colleagues yeah and I, i'm absolutely certain that all of our listeners if they do know you or once they have listened to this podcast i'm sure they will uh, learn more about you will be really interested in in how you win business and but i'll describe it as your your marketing strategy um because it is very modern it is quite innovative you've got a very very successful podcast relatively speaking um can we talk about what you describe as the capital asset management marketing strategy and why podcasting and, and all that sort of stuff well podcasting is it just is one strand to it so i think so I, i'm of again of the the generation where I, so I, I straddle i think a, a kind of generation of shift because you know back in my day as us old people say back in the day you know, I was, you know, wear out the shoe leather. Literally, that's what I was doing is kind of, you know, going around, seeing people, having coffees, breakfast, beers, chats, you know, pitching, presenting, which is great. And I think there's no there's no substitute for that. Ultimately, 
you know, we're, we're human beings, we are, we're social creatures, we like to, you know, see the whites of their eyes and all that sort of stuff. The challenge with that is it's not scalable. You can't, there's only so many, you know, so much foot leather, you know, shoe leather you can um, you can wear out at any time. So I really, it took me a while, but I really get to understand the, mod, the kind of the digital marketing era that we're now you know, very much a part of. And looking at things like, you know, platforms like LinkedIn, like Twitter, like, I mean, those are my, the two main ones. Obviously there's dozens of others that I don't really pay much attention to Facebook, Instagram, TikTok or anything else. I'm sure there's lots of opportunities there, but my focus is on platforms um, and, and also a podcast. And I've also, we've got two podcasts. I've got my main one, which is Bulletproof Entrepreneur. And shout out to the other podcast. It's like, <laughs> don't do any at all. And it's London buses two come along at once. So there's another podcast that some of the listeners may know about or, or might want to check out called The Real Advisor Podcast, T-R-A-P, Trap. So it's me and, and, and three amigos, three colleagues of mine, other you know different advisors who might be well-known uh, in the industry. And we do a podcast every two weeks and we kind of chew the fat on the um, subjects of the day. And that's been very successful as well. You know, as, you, as yours is and will be in the future, podcasting, I think it's a great medium. People consume this information. I personally like podcasting because I can do other things while I consume the information, unlike YouTube, which I've got to sit and watch a, mm, a video. Exactly. Yeah. I like to be able to, you know, go for a walk, go for a run, get in the car, do something else and be sort of listening to me at the same time. So, so my view is I can create, you know, things like these platforms, podcasts, social media. In my mind, it's almost like in the old days, you would take out an advert in the newspaper and it cost you a fortune and you would write something in it, whatever your message was. Now you can do it for free and other than your time. Mm. And you can get, and and the way that if you spend any amount of time trying to understand how algorithms work, these whole, it's, it's a kind of really, it's a complex yeah. subject, but there's some obvious things. The whole purpose of any of these platforms, you know, in, in, in quite sort of nefarious terms, they want to just keep you on the platform, want to yeah. keep you consuming because they can sell advertising dollars and the more eyeballs they've got on it. But I think my view is, well, can we, can I take that? To, can I rather can I be a creator rather than a consumer? Can I not just sit there scrolling through doom scrolling through all the nonsense that that comes up on social media? Can I can I instead be somebody who creates content, who shares it with the world, and all of a sudden I've got access to tens of thousands of people? Now they're not all going to be clients, they're not prospective clients, but it, it becomes you become a a voice, I suppose. And the way the algorithms work, if you've ever, if anyone's ever read anything that I post to see on LinkedIn and have spent more than a few seconds reading it, the algorithm will keep sending anything else I post because the algorithm has understood that you like this stuff. They don't care what it says. They just want you to stay on the platform. And you've indicated because you've spent more than three seconds reading this stuff that you like this, whether it's me, you or anyone else. Mm. So you'll keep getting it. And I've had some people say to me, God, you're on LinkedIn all the time. And I'm absolutely not. I, I, I schedule to do to post once a day, once in the morning is all I aim to do. And I, and I pre-schedule it in advance. So it just drops at a pre-time time. But because someone else, the person who might have said that, they read it every every time. So yeah. it looks like I'm always on and the algorithm will keep sending to them every day until they stop reading it. And then it will stop. They'll, they'll find something else to send to them. So I begin to understand all this stuff. I've done writing courses. I'm did, I've done digital writing courses. I've tried to learn a lot more about it. And it's been quite interesting. And the point being, all this stuff is joined up. It's now the single biggest source of our new business opportunities. The more, more, there's barely a week goes past that I don't get a call or, or contact from somebody saying, 
I saw something you posted on LinkedIn and then I downloaded, I looked at your podcast and listened to two episodes. Quite interesting what you see. Can we jump on a call sometime? Mm-hmm. And that's that is a, that's, that's pretty regular. And what I'm very specific about here as well, I see a lot of advisors. And this is, if you want, if, if you've got advisors or anyone else who's interested in growth, um, I think there's a lot of merit in, I see so many people posting stuff which is bland and generic and, you know, the new pension rules or something. No one cares about that stuff and I can get it anywhere else. I can Google a lot of these things. I think you've got to demonstrate some of your own personality and you've got to, you've got to have a voice and an opinion. And the challenge with having an opinion is that not everyone agrees with you, which is good and bad, but it means you're going to have a few people who really violently disagree with you. So you get a few <laughs> interesting debates. If you, if I, I, I don't really participate in it much anymore, but as you know, you get some, some you, you, interesting sort of online um you know, exchange of views, shall we, shall we put it? Like uh, but the other thing, of course, anymore. is that I'm very keen on this idea of kind of building my tribe. I know what I stand for. I know what I believe in. And I'm absolutely, I'm really convinced on it. I'm, I, I'm, look, don't get me wrong. I challenge my thinking all the time. I read things which challenge the things I believe in. But ultimately, there's things that I believe in. And I only want to continue to build the tribe with people that I like speaking to, hanging out with, if we're going to be a client, Someone I enjoy working with and my team would enjoy working with. Again, sorry to say this to you, but we've avoided having to pay a few recruitment fees over the years because, you know, we've, we've got a name out there and we post stuff online and you get people who get in touch and say, look, if you're ever recruiting, you know, give me a shout because I'm looking for a job. So there can be a lot of positives about creating, about utilizing the, plat- the platforms which already exist and leveraging that that, that them as a, as a tool for communication and sharing your you know creating having a voice and sharing your message and it's you know it, it's you know compared to the people who really know what they're doing I, I am absolutely you know ground level you know clueless but I know enough I know enough to be dangerous put it, put it that way and it's and it's it's worked quite well so far so so we'll continue with the podcast we'll continue with the the sharing of our thoughts and ideas on the various platforms okay. That was good stuff, Alan. So I'm conscious we've been been chatting for a little while, and so so I'll, I'll move the the the, the conversation forward because we could chat easily for another hour or so. But oh, what yeah. I'm interested in as a as a business owner, okay, he's been on a journey for since what 2004 is it 20 years? Yeah, said, nearly 20 years. Yeah, yeah, he built a business to you know best part of half a half a billion in it, it's big numbers and you've done it in a kind of modern, quite innovative way and built a really nice culture. So that's fair play to you. But if you stop and reflect for a moment, you know, what, what is kind of, it's a big question, this Alan, but what is the kind of key learning that you would have or you would give to somebody who's that one person, you know, above the train station in Victoria who's just bought a business that is now on about to commence this journey? Yeah, what would you say? Oh, yeah, it's a great question that I often, well, I do, I do reflect on sometimes. I think, well, if you're starting a business, there's some practical realities. It depends on your own individual and your economic circumstances, but you need to be able to pay the bills. You need to be able to generate an income. So assuming that I'm at that level where I think, you know, we're, we're doing okay, um, do you know the single biggest thing that we should have done, and I've, and I, and I continue to sort of, in some ways, self-destruct, is you should simplify. This business, this industry is actually really, really, really simple, but the, the the industry seems to want to complicate it. 
and the advisors and, and I once complicated. So over the years, the amount of you know shiny new objects, new technology, new systems. You know, I mean, we're, we're we're going through a process right now this year to kind of really shake out all the you know. I think over the years as a business, you just layer things on top of each other. We'll add this bit, we'll add this. But before you look back a few years later, there's always a reason. Or you think, well, that would be that would be helpful in these circumstances, or we'll or we'll have multiple different service propositions. I mean, a business of our size, I'm not kidding you, this is embarrassing to admit it, but it wasn't long ago. We had nine different service propositions, depending on type of client, age, age situation, where they were. And you think, what you know, what were we smoking? Because that's it's nuts, <laughs> because it really is quite simple. And really, so if you can distill everything down, I'm a believer in a concept called first principles thinking. You distill it down and keep distilling and keep. What is the what are you trying to do? So you ask yourself the question: What business am I in, and who do I work best with? So I'm a big believer in. Not everyone believes in this. I'm a big believer in being a sector specialist. You know, the people got a niche, a niche as the Americans call it. <laughs> Be known as one thing. So we used to be. You know, another thing about early stage in business is you take on business from anywhere. You know the the famous, if, if if they're breathing, they're in, they can sign a, an application form. And as soon as you, I've got the luxury of not having to do that, mm-hmm. then begin to get known as a spe- sector specialist. Your business is a set, you don't deal with every type of industry, every accountant, lawyer, whatever. You, you, you're in the wealth management space, so you're well known for that. And there's a lot of merit. So I would distill everything down to first principles. What business are we in? What problems do we solve? And who do we solve them for? And just ask yourself that almost every day and every week and become an absolute go-to expert. Understand your client, your target audience's problems better than they do. So you can articulate them using their words and language that they would use themselves at their, if it's dentists or entrepreneurs or whatever it is, at, you know, at their, when they get together for a beer or something, what do they say? How do they say it? What words do they use? How can you, you know, put yourself? And then after that, it's a kind of rinse and repeat model. You don't need 27 different cash flow systems. You don't need five different CRM back office systems. I think there's so much noise in our industry. Strip it back, strip it back, strip it back, get to the base level. How could we run this business? What's the minimum, it's like the minimum effective dose, which is another sort of description. What's the minimum effective structure we could have? People, you know, proposition, charging structure, investment philosophy, Break all those things down into the, the simplest possible uh, structure and, and, and run with it. The challenge is people like me, it's so, it's so successful that you stop doing it <laughs> because it gets boring. And you've got to, dis- you've got to recognize that this. You've got to recognize you're not here. You're here, you're here to do a job, yeah, for fun as well. There needs to be a bit of fun in, in the work you do. But you're not going to get all your kicks out of work. So don't worry. If you want to, get, if you want fun and enjoyment, go and take up skydiving. Do something else which is going to sort of richly reward you for the excitement you take. But the business that we do, distill it down to its basic parts, simplify it, and just show up every day and deliver it. And I think, I think that's what I forgot to do at some stage along the way. And just got excited by all the other things that were available to us, and we just bundled them into the into the company over the years. Yeah, I can see some similarities with our business too. But <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So I think what we'll do, Alan, because we've been chatting for a little while, is we'll move. Yeah, we'll move to the quick fire round. Okay, and so oh yeah, 
<laughs> so with the quick fire round, the idea of what we're trying to do is have an anchor across all the episodes so we have uh, a consistency. Uh, we're going to ask you five questions that are about you. And your the idea is that you're supposed to just respond, not think about it too much, just say the first thing that comes to mind. So are you happy with that? We'll... Uh... We'll give it a go. Yeah, listen to what I have listened to you past uh, podcast episodes. So I'll be trying to remember what the questions are, but I can't remember them all. But uh, fine, you go go for it. Okay. So, Alan, uh, in one word, how would your partner describe you? Ah, you haven't met her, have you? Uh, um, <laughs> talkative, as as I'm ably demonstrating my 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 storytelling skills operate at home as well as well as at work. Talkative. Okay, cool. Um, I need a better word for this, but who is your idol? I'm going to say my dad. Still going strong, 80-odd, nice. absolute legend of a man. Um, lives in Scotland. I'm going to have to see him in a couple of months. Uh, yeah, quite a force of nature. My So, my dad. Nice, nice. What are you currently reading, Alan? At any one time, I will have between three and five books on the go. What I'm really getting into right now, which is a recommendation from a friend of mine, is called uh, it's called Unreasonable Hospitality. Will I think his surname is pronounced Gadara? Gadara. He's the guy who founded it's it's all oh, is the restaurant industry in New York, the really high end, eleven Madison Avenue, so, um, okay. Madison Park, or one of those, and he just talks about how to deliver just an outstanding level of service. Can you imagine that sort of Michelin star restaurant? industry in new york city it's so crazy competitive what do you do to stand out and there are so many uh ideas that we can take away into financial services in terms of just delivering an outstanding service experience in a very increasingly competitive market so it's called unreasonable hospitality it's a great read no that's a good one yeah what's your pet hate you know i i'm i'm pretty chill i don't really hate anything much i'll tell you what was currently getting me going is and i've, I've alluded to it earlier on anonymous accounts on the internet that are you know big and brave and mouthy without yeah. any, any sort of um you know substance or back or backup so and i do my i don't i don't block anyone on the internet but i do mute quite a few people who are a bit too bit too mouthy through by behind their anon anonymity so that's my current yeah. pet hate yeah a good one as well um, okay, and right, so Signia are getting the bill, Alan. You can right, so um, you know, we're doing okay at the moment. So you know, you can go on holiday anywhere in the world, right, with your family or on your own, whichever you would prefer. Where do you go? Yeah, I tell you what, I tell you what we would do. I've I've got recency bias on this because I've recently come back from it. But my family, my my children are at the age now where they just love it. To, to a whole different level which is skiing so we love our skiing holidays our family skiing holidays and if you're paying then we're going heli skiing in freaking canada for sure maybe japan <laughs> not okay. sure so something like that that whole skiing experience with with with, um, with the family would be an outstanding thing to do thank you very much I'll send you the invoice <laughs> yeah yeah okay sure yeah but no alan this has been um a lot of fun actually so thank you for coming on board and sharing some of your uh wisdom yeah um absolute, yeah, pleasure, absolute pleasure i'm um 
I'm really, I'm always in admiration. It's great. As, as you know, I'm usually asking the questions in podcasts. And so it's nice to be on this sort of other side of the mic as it's, uh, as they say. And, uh, and, and thank, thank you for inviting me on. You're doing a great job and good luck with the, uh, the future episodes. Thanks, Alan. Cheers.